and therefore Mantino tried poisoning him. He tried accusations of heresy against him, and finally he tried an appeal to the Inquisition, insisting that Molcho be executed for denying his uh, Christian origins because he was now living as a Jew. Exactly 500 years ago to the day, in February of 1524, he arrives in Venice and changes the lives of thousands of Jews. But the Pope continues to protect Molcho, and Molcho repays the favour by warning the Pope that a flood was about to inundate the city of Rome, and it struck on October the 8th, 1530, killed 10,000 people. Welcome to History for the Curious. I'm Mena Reisner, and I host the internationally renowned lecturer, dynamic historian and tour guide, Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. Experience our history, confront dilemmas, and reveal the untold stories of 3,000 years of Jewish heritage, from Paris to Cairo, from the Russian Tsar to Maimonides, and from the Sinai Revelation to the French Revolution. Join the fastest growing Jewish history podcast in the world by subscribing to this channel and discovering the events that have shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back. You're going to have to start speaking in English again, I'm afraid, for our listeners. You've been uh, talking French for the past few days. I think you even sent me a French voice note by mistake. For the listeners, Robert Hirsch has been doing a trip in uh, Vienna. Budapest and Vienna, yes. And it was the French McCarvin from Olami. So uh, it was more or less in French, yes. In fact, talking of trips, I wanted to let all our listeners know that we are planning a trip from 6th to 9th May, which we have just confirmed today. It will cover the cities of three countries, the Czech Republic, Austria and Slovakia, which will therefore include Vienna, Nikolsburg and Bratislava. It's with myself and Rabbi Akiva Tatz. There are 35 spots available in total. 22 have already been taken, mostly by people from Israel and America. If any of our listeners are interested, please email gianna.elav, so that's G-I-A-N-A dot E-L-A-V at gmail.com. Uh, you can use the regular podcast address, but it might take a day or two extra to get to us. Okay, so before we get to today's topic, we're already a week since the ICJ has commented on the case against Israel. I just wanted to hear what your reactions and opinion was, seeing that we did a whole podcast on it. Right, so Baruch Hashem, as we mentioned, the ICJ did not call for provisional measures that would include a ceasefire. I mean, basically for self-serving reasons and nothing to do with defending Israel, even to the degree that potentially they don't seem to have voted on it. They did impose other measures, though. Yes, um, and of those, some are disappointing, some of them are meaningless, uh, like compiling a report, which is done anyway. And, of course, predictably, therefore, in the BBC, you had headlines like, ICJ imposes measures, uh, whereas in more reliable media, it was, ICJ does not impose a ceasefire, which had been requested by South Africa. But it was disappointing. Firstly, that they did not in any way call out the South African irregularities in the lead-up to the case that, that we 
had mentioned in our podcast, and the ICJ didn't simply ignore it. They basically steamrolled over it by saying that South Africa opened a case and there were notes sent to Israel. Their lack of care for a, a balanced legal approach is somewhere between, I guess, uh, I don't know, disappointing and disgusting, but it's a UN agency. And equally disappointing was the fact that in the 40-minute monologue, not once was there any acknowledgement that Israel was attacked. I mean, surprisingly, they mentioned the hostages, though. Yeah, once, basically in passing, I would say it's basically window dressing. Um, but they never spoke about the fact that there is a conflict which was started, you know, unilaterally by one side. And that uh, whatever the findings, Israel is animated in its actions by the fact that 10,000 missiles continue to fall on Israel from areas with large civilian population which should figure in the court findings, not simply in the issue of self-defense, but in defining why civilian areas have become war zones. Nothing, you know, not a mention. So the case itself is still ongoing. Very much. Yeah, I mean, this ruling was just to decide whether immediately Israel has to have rules imposed upon it. And in that sense, almost nothing was imposed. Nothing really changed regarding the conflict. But the actual crime and accusation of genocide is still being investigated. Once again, only about Israel, not if Hamas committed genocide. It'll take months, years. But there should essentially be no way that it should pass. We'll no doubt get back to this, but possibly only in uh, 2025. Right. <laughs> Yes, so our listeners should subscribe in order not to miss it. Right. Um, Robbie Hirsch, just before we get into today's topic, I wanted to congratulate us. And the podcast has now reached the number one most listened to Jewish podcast in the UK. And that is an astonishing achievement. And we're very proud to have gotten so far. So thank you for all the listeners for their help in getting us there. Absolutely. So we go one more thing before I forget. We've been receiving so many emails regarding offline listening. People have their kids in yeshiva or seminary and they want to listen to the podcast. And I have responded this same email many times to the various requests. Podbean is the platform you go on in order to download them in an MP3 and then you can upload them to where your hearts desire. And I thought it was worth a mention seeing how many people found use of this. Rabbi Hirsch, today's podcast, what is the topic? You kept it very close to your chest. I mean, I asked you a couple of times and you it was a major secret. So we were not supposed to get to this topic for a few weeks, but then I noticed that it occurred exactly 500 years ago, and I mean to the day. It's a story that's vaguely familiar to people, but not really the details or the reasons. And it's about two people, really, not one, a little interchangeably. And it is odd because we do know what happened. We just don't quite know why and probably never will. And we will start with part of one event that happened almost at the end of the whole episode, December 1532, when crowds filled the main square in Mantua, Italy. Charles V was visiting. He was basically about to provide a spectacle. He was the Holy Roman Emperor, the ruler of Spain since the age of 19. He controlled much of Europe, other than France. And thanks to the Spanish maritime discoveries of the Americas and the East Indies, his empire was global. And he made this town the one where he would pass judgment on a Jew whose um, eloquence had the masses enthralled. And this Jew, dressed like a Portuguese noble, had the Pope's own protection and was rumoured to have death-defying powers. But who was he? 
and why did his life so urgently concern the Holy Roman Emperor? In fact, why did he attract so much attention even after he died, even as far as the city of Tzvas, where the Shochanaruch Rebius of Cairo mentions him? So, he was born in Portugal around 1500 to parents who were conversos Murano. We don't know how aware of Judaism he was. He knew he was a Jew. He was brilliant, and there was a trajectory for greatness. By 20, or perhaps even the age of 19, he is referred to in Portuguese documents as Dr. Diogo Pires. And in fact, in that year, the king appointed him to the Court of Appeals, the country's highest court, as an appointee of the king, which means that the king expected and would receive loyalty from him. And of course, he was a practicing Catholic. And then in December of 1525, so approximately five years later, a rather unusual, almost bizarre figure from unknown origins appeared in the royal court in Lisbon and changed Diego Perez's life. And this strange new arrival in Portugal, who was, by the way, openly Jewish, wrote a diary of his travels, and in the introduction, he tells the people about himself as follows. My name is David, the son of Solomon the king, and the brother of the present king, Joseph, who rules in a land with deserts over hundreds of thousands of people, members of the tribe of God and Reuven and uh, half of Manasseh. I have travelled here on behalf of the king and his 70 elders so that I should have an audience. His name, as he said, was David Ruveni, and his original diary was actually found in the 19th century in the library of a Jew in Hamburg. It was then purchased by the Bodleian Library in Oxford, and a number of years later it was lost. We don't have it anymore. There was possibly another copy at the Jewish seminary in Breslau, uh, in Wroclaw, but this building was destroyed by the Nazis in 1938. And this personal account of David Ruveni contains extracts which are clearly uh, fanciful, probably inventions, but there are certain things in there which we can ascertain as absolutely true, based, for instance, on other eyewitnesses, on other writers of the time. But we don't know his original name, and we do not know where he came from. Did he come from Turkey, from the Middle East? Was he perhaps of Ashkenazi origins and just settled in one of these countries? Uh, what we do know is he spoke Hebrew and Arabic. He sounds a bit like Eldad Hadani. Do you remember the uh, earlier? You remember in the earlier podcast on that of Jewish travelers. To the degree that he may have even borrowed his style. Wow! You say he turned up where and when? What? What? Okay, it's a bit of ambiguity. Exactly five hundred years ago to the day, in February of fifteen twenty-four, he arrives in Venice and changes the lives of thousands of Jews. On the 2nd of February, to be precise, this Jew appeared in the port of Venice. These were the fading years of the golden era of Italy for the Jews, uh, but before they'd been placed in ghettos or any sovereign been confiscated or burnt. This individual is short, thin. They would discover he would spend many hours praying and fasting. He was wearing silk clothing, dressed like a Muslim with a white turban and a white scarf, with which, according to Daniel of Pisa in his letters, he covered his head and most of himself. And initially on his arrival, he was the object of mockery. He spoke in Russian Kodesh, sometimes in Arabic, 
And the Venetian Jewish community noted that this stranger arrived unaccompanied on a merchant vessel. He requested charity from the Jews because all his wealth had apparently been lost along the way. And in Venice, he was hosted by the captain of the ship that had brought him there. So he sent his servant to carry out negotiations with the Jewish community, and he asked for a ship to bring him to Rome. Now, some of the people in the Jewish community were suspicious, but nevertheless, he gets the support of many, and in the month of Adar, he reached Rome by ship, and he entered Rome riding a white horse, a person of stature, and he is received there by Cardinal de Viterbo, who was a humanist, who had a positive regard for the Jewish people, and in fact had learnt Hebrew from a Jewish teacher. And his first Shabbos there, he goes to the shul, and wherever he goes, he's accompanied by crowds. He is novel. Jews who came to see him, Christians who were intrigued, this half-mystic, half-traveller. And one of those who, in fact, was particularly solicitous of his welfare was the uh, Giveret of Napoli, Benvenida Barbanel, who was the daughter-in-law of Rubiutzhaka Barbanel, who was no, no longer alive at that moment. And through the cardinal, this David Ruveni manages to get the audience he wanted with the Pope, Clement VII. Obviously, very unusual. I mean, almost unheard of. A Jew coming to the Pope, not to beg, not in humility, but with a proposal. He is an emissary. And in his writings, he records that he asked the Pope for two things. That the Pope should make peace between the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and the French King Francois I. And in fact, that the Pope should write a letter on behalf of Rouveni to these two kings. And the second thing is that the Pope should also write a letter to the Portuguese king. And he gets part of what he asked for. He gets a letter written to the King of Portugal, although the Pope made him wait a year for it. So it means, on the one hand, the Pope clearly wasn't completely convinced of everything that Ruveni said to him, but some of it mattered enough for him to take action. And the head of the church did something for the Jews, which is highly unusual. And going to Portugal, of all places, is downright bizarre, because there'd been an expulsion, a conversion of all Jews there in 1497. This is 1525. Portugal was Jew-free, yet he wants to go there. I mean, the obvious question is, why was the Pope interested in him? What did he hope to gain? I'm assuming he wasn't a very easy man to meet. Okay, so the 1500s is a time of great discovery of new worlds, of new wealth. It's also a time when the Ottoman Empire is the largest, the strongest, and not just in the Middle East, but across Europe. There are Christians under Muslim control. If you remember the second episode on Budapest, we explained that much of Hungary was dominated by Turkey from 1526. And therefore, this is very different to the original Muslim Empire in the 7th century, when they were conquering pagan countries. Ruveni came to them with the idea that the Christians needed to conquer this Muslim Empire. And the siege of Vienna in 1529 meant that it could have been that much of Europe would have been Muslim. So Portugal can hear the idea, as can the Pope, that Christians are being subjugated by Muslims, which is anathema to them. And therefore the goal is form new crusades against the Ottoman Empire. And Ruveni, you know, get this, envisioned a grand alliance, three Christian kings and one Jewish king. 
So King Charles V, the King of France, Preston John, the Emperor of Ethiopia. But he, Ruvani, would provide, or maybe lead, thousands, tens of thousands of Jewish troops from this supposed Jewish kingdom of Kaibar, which was then apparently governed by Ruvani's brother. And we assume that his goal was to get enough people to expel the Ottomans from Eretzisrael to bring about some form of redemption. But the Christians at that time, I mean, they're not exactly going to take advice from a Jew. It'd almost be embarrassing to listen to one now. Okay, so as I mentioned, the world is in a great state of change, and it's a religious world, and change has to be understood, therefore, in religious terms. It's a bit wild, but it happened. I mean, you know, we can't argue with the Matthias. This is what happened. The Pope wrote a letter. We still have it. And he writes, the account that Ruvenia has told us we are far from the places where the said truths are being spoken about, so we don't know if they're true. On the other hand, we don't want to ignore these words altogether. Therefore, we have sent Ruveni to you because you have people who travel constantly around the world, and maybe you can find out more information. Where were the Rabbonim in this? Some uh, were quite happy to go along with it. Um, others were perhaps unaware of some of this, definitely outside of Italy. Interestingly, the Sforno met him in Rome with three other Rabonim and was unconvinced. Anyway, Ruveni set sail from Italy to Portugal, and we have found a letter in Portugal in the archives, which Ruveni sent to the King of Portugal on the 24th of October, 1525, which says, I am here on behalf of my brother, the King. We are waiting for your majesty's command. We have 600,000 warriors waiting to assemble into this army. And the King received Ruveni with honours, and the Muranos in Lisbon were flabbergasted. Because the expulsion had taken place 30 years earlier, Jews were not only unwelcome citizens, they were outlawed. And here there is a Jew, and he's dressed regally. He's carrying a flag which has got the Aceris Adibris embroidered on it, and he's negotiating with the king man to man. But over the next few months, as a result, the king noticed that a lot of these conversos were hanging around Ruveni. Unsurprisingly, you know, they're hoping there'll be some type of redemption. And the king is very unhappy about it because Ruveni's visit is known across Lisbon. And it is here that we go back to what we started with. Diego Perez in 1525, this young Murano genius, this Jew who we've mentioned, met Ruveni in the royal court and asked Ruveni to teach him Torah. And Ruveni tries to dissuade him because he is an astute politician and he predicted that if Perez returns to Judaism and it becomes public, both of them would be thrown out of Portugal. Perez took this differently. He wrote, I thought to myself, perhaps he's unwilling to reveal the matter to me, i.e. Torah, while I'm still uncircumcised. So that night after I left him, I circumcised myself by my own hand with no one beside me, and he took the name Shlomo Molcho, and he almost died that night. He recovered, but the damage to Ruveni's reputation was irreversible. The king blamed him for Molcho's actions. This is a personal counter of the, uh, counselor of the king. And there were a number of conversos who had renounced Christianity to some degree. And he, Ruveni, is expelled from Portugal in shame, and Molcho flees as well. And for the moment, let's leave Ruveni and concentrate on our main person, this Portuguese Jew, Shlomo Molcho. 
He goes to Salonika because Jews can live openly there. And in Salonika, there's a very large community of Spanish and Portuguese refugees. He meets Revyosev Taitatza, a great Poisic at the time. And he, in fact, he probably learned in his yeshiva in Salonika, where his fellow students are the Alshech, Moshe Alshech, and Rav Shlomo Alkabetz, who authored the Lechaldoidi. And Rav Shlomo Alkabetz quotes Molcho, so they definitely met. And he becomes, in an extremely short period of time, a Talmud Chochem. In this period, 1525 to 1528. And he starts getting Talmidim. And he learns Kabbalah. And after a year in Salonika, Molcho returns to, well, after a year in Salonika, but uh, two other years out of Portugal, Molcho returns to Italy. And now he is taking on a public role because Europe is um, cooking, is one way to put it. And he speaks all over. He's attracting Christians and Jews alike. He's got calculations of the date of final redemption. And sources place him in Tzvas, in Amsterdam, in Yerushalayim, in Constantinople. And he is a very powerful speaker. He goes from town to town to bring people to a state of Truva. And he said that in 1540, Mashiach will come. And he finds an allusion to this in a medrash, Ada Asher Ove Ladoni Seira which is the Italia Shalyovon, and the Elioanovi will appear initially in Rome, where Moshech already sits at the gate, and therefore he makes up his mind to go to Rome to tell the kings there, i.e. the Pope, that Moshech's arrival is imminent, and he documents his dreams and his letters and his ideas of Kabbalah. And in fact, he will interpret Megillus Rus and Eov um, um, allegorically for the redemption of Klal Yisrael, and while he is in Rome, he meets the Pope. He comes out of his meeting. It's the same Pope, same Pope Clement VII. He gets permission to publicly teach Torah as long as he doesn't malign Christianity. Although, if you look through the Kisver of Shlomo Molcho, you'll see that he issued dire predictions for what would happen to Christianity when they would be judged by heaven. But the Pope continues to protect Molcho and Molcho repays the favor by warning the Pope that a flood was about to inundate the city of Rome, and it struck on October the 8th, 1530, killed 10,000 people. Molcho then sent a message to his former employer, friend, the King of Portugal, warning him that an earthquake was imminent, and on January 26th, 1531, an earthquake destroyed one-third of the houses in Lisbon. Molcho also predicted the appearance of a comet, which turned out to be Halley's Comet, whose cycle was unknown at the time. And now, you know, his reputation, his prophetic reputation, goes through the roof. His advice is sought by political and religious figures, and so he is allowed to live openly as a Jew in these papal states, publishes books there, which is unbelievable. But why would the Pope protect a Jew whose actual message is very anti-Christian? Because the Pope sees this as referring to the second coming of their saviour. And he says, you know, we'll see at the end who's right. Now, you would have thought that in all this, he'd be a hero to the Jews. And undoubtedly, that was the case for many people. But Molcho didn't lack enemies. His bitterest was the Svardi philosopher and physician Jacob Mantino, who translated uh, Hebrew and Arabic philosophical and scientific works into Latin. And he was worried on two accounts. First of all, that Molcho may be wrong. 
And secondly, that the Christians will take it negatively, which you mentioned, and therefore Montino tried poisoning him. He tried accusations of heresy against him. And finally, he tried an appeal to the Inquisition, insisting that Molcho be executed for denying his uh, Christian origins because he was now living as a Jew. And, you know, if you're originally Christian, you return or go to Judaism and minimally need to be arrested. But nothing happens, and in 1531, Molcho printed his Sefer, uh, which becomes known as Sefer HaMafoyar, which were his speeches. And then, in 1532, he meets up again with David Ruveni in Venice, having not met since Lisbon. And Molcho has decided that the time has come for the main mission of his life. This time, in partnership, they decide to go and see the king, Charles V, in Regensburg, and Molcho has with him a flag on which was written the Roshitevis Mem Chof Beis Yud Makabi Micho Ba'ilim Hashem. Now, Charles V is not an easy person. He quarreled with Francis I of France, with the Ottoman Sultan, with uh, Henry VIII, uh, with the Lutherans, and there's no source that tells us exactly what the meeting was about. He got the meeting, uh, but there's an archbishop who writes two letters giving us some information. The pair spent two hours with the emperor, and Molcho proposed establishing a Jewish-Christian army to fight the Muslims, and he offered to lead it in battle. Now, the emperor was, you know, taken aback. I mean, a Jewish army would be bad enough, but the idea of a Jewish commander-in-chief over Christians was beyond terrible. Now, it's true that Jocelyn of Rosheim, who was at the time an advocate for German Jews in the imperial court, he wrote in his memoirs that Molcho didn't intend conquering Eretz Yisrael, but he was sort of encouraging the emperor that the Jews would regain their religious freedom. There is another account, which is to be found actually of all places in the Encyclopedia Britannica, that Molcho simply wanted money from the emperor and weapons so that the crypto-Jews could stand up for themselves and fight the Ottomans. So it's unclear, but the general uh, concept is known. And he told Charles V of his dreams and his insights, and it went very badly. Now, Molcho was well aware of the great personal risk he was taking. He had written that Sheikh ben Yosef is destined to die in war. But what actually happens is that the Emperor gives orders that Molcho and Ruveni should be handed over to the Inquisition for trial in Mantua. But given that the Emperor also gave orders to set up the stake, it left no doubt as to what the verdict was going to be. He was condemned to death. And as he was led to his death, the Inquisitors feared that Molcho, because of his reputation, you know, as a seer and a Kabbalist, would use magic to save himself or to sway the crowd. So they gagged him as he was led to the auto de fe. And just before he was executed, a messenger from Charles V arrived with an offer that if Molcho recanted and converted to Christianity, he would be reconciled. So his gag was removed and he replied that his only regret was that he'd ever lived as a Christian till the age that he had come back to his people and he was now ready for his soul to return to Hashem. And he was killed there, and his assumed yacht site is the fifth of Teves. Interestingly, his cloak and flag survive in Prague. And interestingly, there is a tullus cotton made out of silk, from which we learn a number of halachas that are quoted in various achrenim. 
with regard to the colour of the tullus and the tzitzis and the distance between the knots. The Elior Rubber writes that the knots were 10, 5, 6 and 5, which is Yudke Vavke, in the name of Hashem. And on one side of the flag, you find the words um, and on the other side, support me, Hashem, and Shehamalos. It needs to still be seen, the talus and the flag. Yeah, yeah. They, or where are they? They are in the Meisel Synagogue in Prague. Wow. Yes. yes. Yeah, on display. Most people walk by, haven't got the faintest clue what they're looking at. It was brought there from Italy. How it survived is unclear. I mean, I guess they had were not going to dress him in his royal garments. Uh, whereas Ruveni, also handed over to the Inquisition, is taken to Spain, and as late as 1535, he is still confined in a prison there, and nothing more is heard of him. He probably died there, although there is one report that a Jew who came from India to Portugal was burnt at the stake in Evora in 1541. Why were the two treated so differently? Why was one imprisoned and one executed? So, Molcho is... Uh, you know, he's a Talmud Chochem, he's a Kabbalist, he had a following, he's more dangerous. More Jewish. Well, also, Ruveni had been on the down, he hadn't really been making waves since his expulsion from Portugal. This whole story is a bit strange, it sounded like a suicide mission. I mean, did he really believe that he would manage to convince an emperor, and a very powerful one, to provide the Jews with an army? It sounds like a crazy idea. It does, and we don't really know, but there is a very different set of reasons, theories that are linked to what he did. The Abarbanel, who died in 1508, but was of that period, wrote that the Spanish expulsion of 1492 made a tremendously negative impact on Spanish Jewry, because almost all of Spanish Jewry was now living scattered across many countries, continents, living in the main, a life which was far less both spiritually economically than they had been and many Jews obviously had been killed and therefore the heads of the generation saw themselves responsible to lift the spirit of these kihilos of these communities in order to make sure that the Jews didn't lose hope in the future in the final redemption and in, in, in salvation and therefore you find at the time people giving predictions of dates for the arrival of Mashiach in order to prevent uh, despair amongst the masses, which would otherwise create a tremendously negative effect because a nation without faith in the future is basically going to lose its connection to the past. And so the Arbarbanel and others also write against the beliefs of Christianity for the same reason. The Arbarbanel writes that many Christians will end up in the Holy Land and there will be a war over Yerushalayim. And it's at that stage that Mashiach ben Yosef will fight with these nations and will die in war. And basically, if you give people hope, you show the potential, you keep them going. So Molcha didn't suddenly appear on the stage of Jewish history. It's part of a conversation that had been going on over the last 20, 30 years. And he has a lasting influence. He is droshes in shul. And astonishingly, Rav Yosef Cairo, who is the author of the Shulchan Aruch, in one of his other svarim, in Magid Mesharim, says that he has one desire, and that is to die Al-Kiddush Hashem like Shlomo Malcho. And in fact, there's even a story that a few months after this execution, um, Rav Yosef Cairo was gathered with his friends for 
chavrusus or talmidim to learn Torah. And he was apparently still shaken by the death of this visionary who had given them comfort. And they heard a buskoil telling them to go to Eretz Yisrael and teach Torah there. And that's why they founded this Kehillah in Tzvas, which also had all these Mekubolim in this period, in exactly this period of time, over the mid part of the 1500s. And you also have at the same time the question over the renewal of Smicha, which is too long to go into now. We'll have to deal with in a podcast in its own right. And that takes place in Yushleim, in Tzvas, in the mid-1500s. And it's connected to this idea of re-establishing a possible future Sanhedrin. So to summarize, he could have purely just been most Nefesh for Klan Yisrael, but yep. he could also potentially have thought he was Moshiach. He was. Uh, he could have thought you know, that this is his role in bring the Gula. It's quite a variety of options. Yes, yeah, which range from the strictly adhering to Torah faithfully to at some stage perhaps losing some of the plot, but nowhere near the sort of the Shabtai Tzvi type of episode. I mean, we now know, of course, that we would have to get through another full 500 years of Golos and, and a Holocaust. And, you know, even to this day, uh, you know, we find ourselves with enemies arising in unexpected places. And, you know, with that way of thinking, even post um, 7th October, you need someone to give you the ability to think differently. You know, we need an Alchanan Danino who says, no, the events of Shmini Atzeres are so unnatural that it has to be Hashem. And that keeps you going. And that's potentially what Shlomo Molcho did and kept them going. Whereas, you know, Ruveni is a military man or at least a military emissary. Now, Rubchaim Vital does write that Shlomo Molcho was an example of somebody who used practical Kabbalah inappropriately and therefore was uprooted from the world. Now, that doesn't mean he was bad, but that he overstepped a certain mark and that brought about his death. You know, we've got the Gemara in Chagiga about uh, the four Arba Nechnesu Lepardes and, you know, one of them dies and, and, and only Rabbi Kiva manages to go in and come out in the same way. So, yeah, we don't know exactly. Uh, the Shach, for instance, mentions of Shlomo Malcha when he talks about the Tzitzis, as I mentioned earlier, as a real Makoir, as a proper source. And the Arizal, although he also criticizes the use of practical Kabbalah, uh, you know, doesn't speak of him as a charlatan. Interesting, the Lubavitcher said that he was a Makobal and he had the Messirus Nefesh to debate with the Pope. And although he failed, he merited giving his life al Kiddush Hashem. And in Igris Ramchal, he, the Ramchal, brings a testimony of Rabrufal Kimchi of Tzvas, who says that the Arizal, and the uh, Mekubal of Shlomo Malcha are two examples of people who no one can deny their teachings and actions and had revelations of angels. So even though he wasn't uh, going as a false messiah, he was still very much, uh, you get the feeling that Mashiach was coming soon, no matter what sort of path he was taking. Was there a sort of vibe similar to when the Shabzai Tzi was around of, a, of an excitement of pending Mashiach? So we don't have anywhere near as many sources, and it doesn't appear that it was sort of overwhelming where people were selling up and, you know, planning on going to Israel. We do have a letter that was written at the time in the summer of 1532. Rabbi Israel Diena, who was the Rov in Sabianetta, writes a letter to an unknown individual, and he pays tribute to uh, Shlomo Malchai, defends him against the suspicion of those who are worried, even though Rabbi Diena himself 
owing to a misinterpretation of a later letter that he wrote, was regarded as an adversary of Shlomo Molcho until this letter that I'm about to quote, which was written in Hebrew initially, put him in a different light. Now, this is in 1532. It's before he goes to the emperor, but after the Pope has said, you know, he's a great guy. And he says as follows. I have heard that there are quarrelsome Jews who criticize Shlomo Malcho, who is initiated into the practical Kabbalah, because, as they say, the Jews have to distinguish themselves from non-Jews in their clothing, language, and habits. This is, however, valid only in case the Jew attempts to pass as a non-Jew, but not if the clothes are used for practical purposes. If, therefore, a Jew who has entry to the royal court dresses and adorns himself richly in order to be able to appear before kings and princes and to avoid scorn and dishonor, he dwells amongst princes in order to proclaim the oneness of Hashem and to bring our Torah into high esteem. He who at present bears witness for our faith before kings eloquently without shame and does not therefore commit any sin if he wears non-Jewish clothes and adorns himself in the manner of non-Jews in order to preserve access to these people. What is the matter with the mob who grumble against him? Tell therefore those who blame him that their silence would be far better than their speech. But to him, I bless him from afar. Tell him on my behalf not to care for all the talk against him and to forgive them according to his virtuous habit. Let him but remain faithful to the Torah. So, you know, this doesn't represent everyone, but it's an insight nonetheless. And all in all, Shlomo Malcha was a very unusual individual. He is a mystery, not because we don't know about him, but because we don't know the how and why of what he did. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. I guess this is a one-off episode due to their circumstances. Make sure you subscribe because uh, there is no doubt that our number one place in the UK is due to more subscriptions being done. And like I've said many times before, the more people subscribe, the easier it gets for other people to find it. And we are still well under half our listeners are subscribed, so it's just easier for yourselves and certainly helps us. Just a reminder as well for the trip from the 6th to the 9th of May to Vienna. Make sure you email gianna.elav at gmail.com. Any other queries, any other questions, you can send to podcast at jle.org.uk. And we'll see you next week, Robert Hirsch. Thank you.